Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for this day, this Sabbath day, this opportunity to come together with your people in your place, under your rule, Father, under your word. I ask that you bless our time together, Father, as we hear the word, uh, as we are warned even today, uh, we have heard the same message that they heard, and yet uh, they did not believe the word. So, Father, today we pray not just for hearing, Father, for believing. We pray that our hearts uh, would receive this, and as we saw last week, that they would not be hardened. Father, as we see your word, as we see you, I pray that we would come to trust you, Father, that we would rest in you. So, Father, we trust that promise that we have from your word, that that is indeed the case. Father, we pray all these things in your precious son's name. Amen. Morning, the first, uh, the title of today's sermon is The Rest of These. The Rest of These. I like to think that it's clever in a few different ways, so we'll see if that plays out or not. The rest of these, in Hebrews chapter 4, 1 through 5, <clears throat> we are continuing the same kind of thread that we've been trying to bring along the whole time. I think that is, uh, if there's any downfall to uh, expository preaching verse by verse through the scriptures, is that we lose sight of the forest for the trees. Uh, so we've been trying to connect those dots for us all along the way, and I think it is, as we talked about on Cold Pizza, our reflection podcast that we put out on Mondays as a staff concerning the sermon. We talked about how it's been rather fortuitous that we spent so much time as a church going through Exodus uh, and then going through Joshua, really helping set a very concrete foundation for where we are in Hebrews. It's been very helpful for that. And so today I want to turn your attention to uh, a song in Exodus, Exodus 15, 13 through 18. You hear this song of the people. It says, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone until your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Israel left Egypt full of hope. This is their song as they are leaving. The song by the Red Sea, after seeing his, their delivery from Egypt, witnesses to their hope that they had as they left Egypt. But alas, their hopes quickly faded. The trials and testings of the wilderness were just too much for them. They walked by sight instead of by faith. And grumbling took the place of praising. Hardness of heart instead of listening to the Lord's voice. And so now too, the Hebrews that are being addressed in our passage in the New Testament are still in the wilderness in a sense. Their profession of faith in Christ, their trust in the Lord, it was being tested. Some of their fellows, the brothers that had been with them, have already departed from the living God. 
as we will see in Hebrews 10.25. So the question then is, is, would then these here, these here, whom the apostles address as holy brothers, will they fall? Will they fail? Will they fail finally to enter into God's rest, as we talked about last week? And so then for us today is the question. For Christians now, heaven is set before us as our final goal. And towards it, we are to press daily, running with perseverance the race that's set before us. But the incentive of our hope only has the power over the heart so long as our faith is being exercised. Because for those who say you will bring them in and plant them on your mountain, the place which you've made for your abode, the sanctuary your hands have established, are the ones who provoke to the Lord to anger. And he said in his wrath, you shall not enter my rest. You see the challenge that we have last week and this week as we walk this, this, this tough line of what the warnings in Hebrews mean. I was reminded by Facebook uh, in a rather nice way this week that 11 years ago on January 5th, 2012, Pastor Matt and I were sitting under Dr. Tom Schreiner at Southern, uh, Southern Seminary listening to Hebrews. And I have specifically this time of us going through the warnings that are in Hebrews and working through these things. And I have a, a quote that I had shared <laughs> on Facebook that I think really sets the tone for what we're looking at here. What we saw last week, what we see this week, what helps us understand this tension that we felt last week and how to resolve it. He said this, unmitigated failure in the face of eternal promise serves to grandly display the depth of human depravity. There is no better picture of the depth of human depravity than to stare into the face of eternal promise and fail on every account. When we talk about what we mean by total depravity as a doctrine that we hold to and that man can do nothing good apart from grace, that's what we mean. We see this played out for these people that would sing that song in Exodus 15 and then go out into the wilderness, having seen all the things that we talked about last week and fail so miserably. So how does it change, therefore, in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 1. What's therefore do? How does it change for us? We have to recognize first today that grace has come. Grace has come. The promise still stands. The promise still stands. You would think by the time that you get to the end of chapter 3 that you're nearing the end of Hebrews. <laughs> by the time you get to the end of that negative warning of Israelites, you're going, oh, Good point. We'll just file this in with the first, second, third John. Short little big warning here for us. What is left then? They didn't make it because of their unbelief. But then we have this, this, this turn in chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest, what? Is closed? Is over? It's gone? You missed it? No, it still stands. It still stands. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So, let's, let's take these by pieces. Let's start with the therefore. Alright, lest we lose where we are in the book and the argument like I talked about earlier. We're beginning another chapter, right? But recognize that we're still hanging out with the argument of chapter 3. 
We're still hanging out with the argument of chapter 3. All of chapter 3 is an amplification of the opening verse. And we're just going to continue that into chapter 4. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, do what? Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And all of chapter 3 was about him as an apostle. The beginning of chapter 4 is about him as an apostle. Pastor Jeff and Pastor Matt are going to be covering him as the high priest at the end of chapter 4. But consider Jesus. That's the argument. If you are a holy brother, if you are in Christ, if you are His, consider Jesus. If we want to summarize it, Christ is to be considered. He's to be attended to. He's to be heard. He's to be trusted. He's to be obeyed. All of these different things we saw throughout that chapter. Why? Because of His exalted personal excellency? He's the Son. He's the Son. He is faithful over His house. And second, because of the dire consequences, which we talked about last week, which must ensue from not considering him, but instead despising him. To not consider Jesus, to not attend to him, to not trust him, to not obey Jesus, is to despise him. And we saw the negative consequences of that last week with the Israelites who believed not. And so they failed to enter the rest of Canaan. So then for us, in the, in the first sections of Hebrew 4, we have this incredible grace presented for us. It's continued, right? Holy brothers, consider Jesus, verse, chapter 3, verse 1 to chapter 4, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. He's still addressing the holy brothers the whole way through. So holy brothers, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, you must continue to consider Jesus, because what? It was too late for those Israelites. It was too late for those Israelites. We talked about how last week the pronouncement wasn't at the end of the 40 years. It was at the front end of the 40 years. And for 40 years, they continued to prove who and what they were. And they provoked him ongoing for 40 years. And at the end, he reflects and says, yes, these are those people. It was too late for them. They died in the wilderness. 40 people every day for 40 years. I can imagine all of you have been to a funeral. I don't know how many of you have had to lead a funeral. It is a, I, I can't help myself. It is a grave affair. I, I got to find, I can't help it. It's a grave affair. It's, it's, it's hard. It's difficult. It's heavy. To, to carry the, 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 the somberness, the sorrow, the grief of these people, to walk with them, even while we can still proclaim so much hope amongst death and that we have victory over death, death is the last enemy. It's hard. And to imagine doing 40 funerals a day, 40 years, they were provoked. They had provoked the Lord to wrath, and we saw that they did not enter his rest. So the question then is for us, how does it still stand? It's too late for them. How does the rest still stand for us? Because they didn't make it in, but we did hear that the generation after them, their children, entered into the land, right? We saw that in Joshua. We walked through that for, for a year. The, the children of the generation that fell did enter into Canaan. So how is there still rest for us? How does that rest still stand? Pastor Jeff's going to unpack a great deal of this, well, really all of this, next week. I have a very kind of narrow focus. 
But notice that it is in this reference to Psalm 95, these, these, these little parentheses that you get in your Bible, these references to the Old Testament, Psalm 95, the author of Hebrews is using a quote from David. David's saying that the rest still stands. How is it that if the generation entered into the land, it still stands for us and still available? Because particularly David is pretty well and settled in at this point, right? He, he's, he's in Jerusalem. He's in the, the, the ground zero, as it were. It's because, as we will see this week and next, that rest was never a place. It was a person. It was never a place. It was a person. It's because we're still doing Hebrews 3.1. We're still considering Jesus. Or because of Hebrews 2.9. But we see Jesus, it says. And so for us, the promise of rest still stands because the person who is rest still stands. Therefore, primarily, for us, we look at Hebrews 3.1 and we recognize that we are to consider this former example as a way to not get rest. They failed to enter, but for us, we have not been shut out. And so we have the hope that they had in Exodus 15. We can sing that song and we can mean it. While the promise of entering his rest still stands. It goes on to tell us, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So while grace has come and the promise still stands, we need to recognize that fear is a killer. Fear is a killer. Fear is a killer. In our passage, it says in the ESV, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. I like the language of uh, the Christian Standard Version. It says, let us fear that none of you should miss it. I have a sense of the idea of what sin is in the first place, of missing the mark. Sin, missing the mark, would have you miss then the rest, the promised land. And so let us fear. Fear is one of the most confusing terms in the Bible. If you try to explain it to, to a new believer, to an old believer, you're just going to go a ton of different directions. It's a confusing term in the Bible. Because we have it in the positive sense, we have it in the negative sense, we have it in the like scary sense, we have it in the reverence sense. For instance, let us therefore fear. For us, we want to say... But we're not supposed to fear, right? We have Isaiah 41, 43, fear not, right? John 14, 27, Christ says to us, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. 2 Timothy 1, 7, for God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. But then, on the other hand, believers are told to fear God, right? 1 Peter 2, 17, and to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2.12. So how are these two different sets of passages to be harmonized? How do we understand fear? Well, we recognize and we don't have to be afraid of the fact that the Bible is full of paradoxes. We, one of the most challenging ones that we usually run into is the idea of grace versus law, right? But then grace versus works. Galatians and James, how can they both be in the same Bible? What are these paradoxes? And the problem is, is that for the natural man, those paradoxes appear to be contradictions. 
The word needs to be rightly divided on the subject of fear as upon everything else that it speaks. So there's a fear that the Christian should cultivate. There's a fear that the Christian should cultivate, that they should grow, they should tend to. There's a fear, though, also from which we should shrink, we should pull back from. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And in Proverbs 14, 26 and 27, we read, And the fear of the Lord is strong confidence. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. And again, happy is the man that fears always. Proverbs 28, 14. So the testimony of the New Testament teaches this same kind of challenge, the same duty. That Christ tells his disciples, Fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 28. And to the saints at Rome, Paul says, don't be prideful, but fear. 1 Peter 1, 17. And while in heaven itself, the word will be given again, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. A.W. Pink says this. I think it's helpful in, in recognizing how we catalog this picture of fear. And, and specifically, when we're looking at a passage like this, that's supposed to be encouraging us, yet telling us to be fearful, but telling us that we're sure, but telling us that maybe not. He says this, fear may be called one of the disliking affections. It is good or evil according to the object on which it's placed. It can be good or bad. It depends on what it's resting on and according to how you order it. So here, in Hebrews 4, he says, it's placed on the right object, an evil to be shunned. You should fear this evil. It should be shunned. You should shrink away from it. That evil is unbelief, which, if persisted in, ends in apostasy and destruction. That's what we saw last week, right? That's the negative example that we saw from Exodus. They did not trust the promise. They did not enter into the land. We see at the end of chapter 3, it's because of unbelief. That evil is to be feared. So, he says this, about this, the Christian needs to be constantly on his guard then, having his heart set steadily against it. Because why? Unmitigated failure in the face of eternal promise serves to grandly display the depth of human depravity. Our natural proneness to fall, the many temptations that we're subject to, together with the deceitfulness of sin and the subtlety of Satan, so sin, our flesh, Satan, and the world, right? Those three things that combat us. And God's justice and leaving men to themselves are strong encouragements to fear unbelief. Shun the evil of unbelief. Break that cycle that we talked about last week. Break that cycle. So that's fear on one object. Let's look at fear on a different object. Concerning God himself, we're to fear him with such a reverent awe of his holy majesty as will make us careful to please him in all things and should make us fearful of offending him. This should also be accompanied then by a fearsome distrust of ourselves. Knowing our natural proclivity, knowing what it means to be in the flesh still, as we see in Romans 7, who will rescue me from this body of death, knowing that at the same time we have a new heart, 
We shouldn't have a fearsome distrust of our flesh. That's why he says, be not prideful, but fear God. And so the fear of God that's evil in a Christian, so wrong object, fear of God in the wrong way, would be that kind of servile bondage where you just do it because that produces a distrustful attitude of God. You don't understand why he's telling you to do it. You don't want to, but you just do it. This is what you're supposed to do. Kills affection for him. You don't, you don't see his goodness. You don't recognize the grace. Kills your, your affection for him. It regards him ultimately as a hateful tyrant. You're the type of Christian, I'm air quoting for those of you that have your head down, Christian who believes that when you ask him for a loaf of bread, he instead gives you a snake. The scriptures tell us that he is a loving and good father who when we ask for bread, he will not give us a snake. You see, that type of fear of God that's evil is the type of fear that the demons have. James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. That's the wrong kind of fear of God. They view him as a hateful tyrant. And so the question then for us with this fear is that, that we might not reach it, right? We fear that we might not reach it. Well, how might we not reach it? It should be no surprise to you. They didn't reach it because of unbelief. It's that simple. Just as last week. But the rest is still open for us. So, verse 2. For good news. What do we hear when we hear good news? Gospel, right? That's just what that means. The gospel came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them. You should stop and you should ask the question, why? Why not? Because they hadn't seen Jesus yet? Was the good news not sufficient in that way? Was it because Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet that it didn't benefit them? Why did it not benefit them? Well, he answers you. Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Hmm. You see, here's the danger. When we look at the Old Testament, we're saying, well, of course not. They hadn't seen Jesus yet. Of course not. Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. The scriptures don't give us that out. The, 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 the reason that it didn't benefit them is because they did not believe the good news that came to them. Because here it is again. We all know it. Sola fide. Justification by faith alone. It was because of faith that they didn't benefit from it. Not because of their place in time. Not because of the significance of the sacrifice. Not because of the sufficiency of the sacrifice. But because of unbelief. Sola fide, justification by faith alone. Those who did not reach the rest failed because of unbelief. They heard the good news. In fact, they recite it in Exodus 15, the song that we began with today. But hearing isn't enough. It's necessary. It's absolutely necessary. But it's not enough. It must be believed. And more specifically, as we talked about last week, it must be trusted. It must be trusted Hebrews 3b, 
the, the little middle one there. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That's why they didn't get in. It must be believed they did not trust. And so how do we know that they had sufficiently heard the good news, the gospel? Because that would be a question for me, right? It is in the Old Testament. It is before Jesus. It's before, it's before Calvary. How do we know that the good news they received was sufficient? Why is it different or not different for us? The scriptures don't let us let them off the hook. In Hebrews 11:13, it shows us this at the end of this, this picture of the hall of faith and Sarah in particular, her trust. We hear this kind of summary. These all died. All those that proceed, they all died, what? In faith. They all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from where? Afar. Afar. This verse shows us three distinct stages in the faith of the patriarchs. First, they saw, they, they seen. They seen God's promises from afar. They saw them from a distance. And they seemed too good to be true, far beyond their apprehension. But what? They were persuaded of them. Or as our ESV renders it, they greeted them, which signifies this close acquaintance with them. They saw them, seemed too good to be true, but they were persuaded by it. They trusted the Lord. And so they greeted them. And so third, they embraced them. They did not come short, but they took them into their hearts. They all died what? In faith. That is a distinct difference from what we're experiencing here in chapters 3 and 4. That wilderness generation died in unbelief, evil unbelief it says. But these all died in faith. This is what the awakened and anxious sinner has to do with the gospel promise. When you are a sinner and awakened to your sin and understand what you are faced with and understand that you cannot pay it and that there is no hope for you outside of yourself, this is what you do. You turn and you believe this wonderful promise. You see it from afar. You greet it and have close acquaintance with it and then you embrace it. And so we know that our Patriarchs and our fathers in the faith died in faith. And we will see them one day. And so wondrous, unique, and passing knowledge as it is, this promise is standing for us. And the person that we are to greet and embrace is Jesus. They saw him all the way back in Genesis 15. What did they see? Well, the same thing that we see, right? First John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and which our hands have handled of the word of life. We have everything we need. And so when we read in chapter 4, verse 2, for good news, the gospel came to us just as to them, the same way. That's what we mean. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and which we have handled. It's come to us just as to them. The same. But what? The message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So fear should be a killer. It should be a killer of unbelief. It should be a killer of pride. The wrong fear can be a killer of the soul. 
The fear that we have is in a God that we have seen. Hebrews chapter 2. But we see Jesus, right? That we have heard. We heard the gospel just as they did. Chapter chapter, uh, 4 verse 2. That we have looked upon. Speaking a little bit more to the sacrifice aspect, which we'll get to in coming weeks. And the fourth, that we've handled the word of life. We've received this testimony. He is the exact imprint of the Father. But they were not united by faith. The message has come to us, and so we must what? Consider Jesus and believe. Consider Jesus and believe. Besides being sick this week, the other reason I struggled with this this passage uh, was trying to figure out what to do with, for we who have believed enter that rest in verse 3. It just reads kind of funny in our ESV and a lot of other translations. Trying to figure out what that is. And so the last kind of thing I want you to see today is this. Believe and enter. Believe and enter. Verse 3, where it says, For we who have believed enter that rest. If, if you don't think you'll like explode and fire right now and you have a pen or pencil, put parentheses around that, okay? Because that's what it is. It is a parenthetical comment, all right? It's a parenthetical comment, which is going to be important in just a minute. But we're going to take that as the statement it is itself. They didn't enter in because they were not united by faith, but we who have believed enter that rest. Believe and enter. We must believe and trust. So as opposed to those who did not believe, for us, it says believe. And I've been saying trust. You may be asking, why do you keep saying trust, Rusty? It just says believe and unbelief. Why do you keep saying trust? As we talked about last week, the necessary requirement is faith. But faith is trusting. You can't be drowning in the ocean, see the, the, the ring thrown to you, and be like, I believe that will save me. And not grab hold of it. You don't truly believe it will save you if you don't act on it. Our trust has to be in recognizing specifically, since we're dealing with the issue of sin and not just lack of a skill, that you cannot do it. And the only way to have it done is to grab hold of the one who can. So that's why we talk about trust. It'd be the same thing for the Israelites to be on the other side of the Jordan and say, I believe that that is our land. And do what they did, not enter it. They didn't really believe it. They did not truly trust it. And so the sheep, for us, enter the land. The sheep trust the shepherd. It hears his voice and it follows him. And so we, who have believed, verse 3, enter that rest. So you see the same competing realities again from last week. It is as believers of the truth that we are secured of eternal life is by holding fast this faith of the truth and showing that we do so that we can alone enjoy the comfort of the security we have in Christ the purpose of God according to election must stand the scriptures say and all of his chosen will assuredly be saved but they cannot know their own election and they cannot enjoy any absolute assurance of their salvation independent of their continuance in the faith, love, and obedience of the gospel. Second Peter 
uh, chapter 1, verse 5 through 12 makes that clear. Now listen, I know some of you heard, heard the wrong thing. All right, you zeroed in on this. They cannot enjoy any absolute assurance. I know you heard that. That's the wrong thing. You should zero in on this one word, independent. Independent. I'll read it again. You, you cannot know your election. We believe in election. We preach it happily. We hold it high. We cannot know our election until we die, right? And so it says they cannot enjoy any absolute assurance of their salvation independent of their continuance in the faith, love, and obedience of the gospel. You see, if you are continuing in faith, love, and obedience, then what? You may enjoy that absolute assurance. You see these, these competing realities? Understanding where we are looking from, whether it's from heaven or from earth. Because if you are not continuing in those things, if you are not continuing in faith, love, and obedience, then you have no reason for any such assurance. Believe and enter is for those who believe. This is why we were encouraged in chapter 3, verse 13, to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We touched on that last week, but I wanted to save the most of it for today, for this. There's no assurance for any of us in this pew, in this room, if we are not continuing in faith, love, and obedience of the gospel. And so... I need people around me to exhort me every day in faith, love, and obedience to the gospel. Lest we all fear that I may not make it. You see the picture coming home? But listen, every day that I'm continuing in faith and love and obedience to the gospel, you ask me now, I stand assured. I know I am elect. And I can know that because I'm a sheep. This is what we talked about last week. This is why sheep can be sheep. Because they stay doing the things that sheep do. This is why we also practice informal and formal church discipline. It's this. Church discipline, whether formal or informal, is another holy brother saying to another, I don't see this continuing in faith, love, and obedience. Look out. I fear you may fail to enter. That's the danger. That's the challenge. That's the call. And so we must recognize that there's no assurance for those that would just claim Christ and say, I believe that's the promised land, but never cross the river. At the same time, we recognize that our continuing in faith, love, and obedience is not our own work. It's by the grace that the promise still stands. It's by the work of Christ finishing what he has started. That's how we can know. That's why I can say, I know. Because in 1 John, I live my life by the light, not by the darkness. We can know. My life is... Ideally exemplified by love for the brothers. People know me by my love for others. 
In Galatians chapter 5 and 6, we keep in step with the Spirit. We produce the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of unfaithfulness. And so those that continue in that can know. Those who would say that they are but have none of that have no assurance whatsoever. They will fail to enter into the rest. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but as of yet, the, the author has not truly defined that word yet for us, right? Rest. What is rest? Can you answer that now? What does, what does he mean? It reminds me, as many things do, of Princess Bride. You keep using that word, but I'm not sure you know what it means. What does he mean by rest? Like, I'm a nerd, and I've embraced it. This, this passage takes a really fascinating turn. Like, all the exciting stuff at the beginning of the week for me was after verse 5. I'm like, curse you, Jeff. Um, <laughs> this was a blessing for me, and I, I hope it is for you. There's a fascinating turn here and helping kind of crack the lid for what rest is, because I'm not going to answer all of it. But is rest just peace? When we encounter this term and when we talk about it in church, a lot of times we're talking about some kind of spiritual peace. Uh, this, this settledness, which is art. But is it just spiritual good vibes? Is it the opposite of work? We also talk about it in that way a lot. Rest and work, work and rest. Resting from work, working for rest, these things. Why does it seem like the majority of Christians don't have rest. They would say they don't have it. They don't act like they do either. Is rest just heaven? Is that when we get rest? The reason I had you mark down that part as a parenthetical space is because it interrupts the sentence. Verse 2 starts, or has this part, they were not united by faith with those who listened parentheses, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. So that parentheses, the actual sentence then is, they were not united by faith with those who listened, even though, although, his works were finished from the foundation of the world. How do those that changes everything. That changes everything, specifically for what he does in verse 4, right? They were not united by faith to those who listened. They were not united even though his works were finished. They didn't trust not a promise that was to come. They didn't trust the finished work. You see, when we open this chapter, the promise is what's held before us, right? Right? The promise still stands. He's going to say in a minute, strive to enter it. He's going to say that we need to make sure that we are rightly understanding us because the word divides us. It searches us. But the promise is what's held in front of us. But what does he go on to say now? They weren't united by faith to those who listened even though the works were finished. It wasn't a promise that they didn't trust. It was finished works they didn't trust. How do we know that? Verse 4. He's going to creation. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. He ties this rest back to creation, to the Sabbath. The work was as good as done. 
He rested. Six days God created, seventh day he rested. The work was done. He's saying here that they didn't listen even though the works were finished. You see, this is the difference between the gods of the culture and the only living God. Yahweh, the final word, the Logos. What he says is done. He was done working. He appeals to creation saying that he was done working. The promise was as good as done. It was finished. The promise stands because it was finished, he says, from the foundation of the world. It's his rest all along, right? And he says specifically, they shall not enter my rest. And if you remember from the past couple of weeks, this is an oath. And he keeps bringing it up over and over. It's as if God is saying, if they were to somehow enter my rest, then that would prove that I am not God. And who is they? The unbelievers. He's saying, if unbelievers enter my rest, then I am not God. And then what does he say in verse 5? They won't. Period. They won't. Believers can't, unbelievers cannot enter my rest. I am God. They will not enter my rest. They won't. Those that would see, that would hear, that would know, yet they would go on to mock and grumble and complain. Why? Because they don't want rest. They saw the finished work. He's rested. It's done. They saw what the actual promise was and they didn't want it. They did not want it. They want something else. And that is where we find ourselves. That's where we struggle to understand the difference of someone who looks like a goat one day and a sheep the next. We have people who would claim to be sheep, yet they don't want a shepherd. We have people who would claim to be a sheep, yet do not want the pen. We have people who claim to be a sheep, yet don't want the shepherd's pasture. They want something else. What did the wilderness generation want? He tells us explicitly they wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to die. They wanted a land without obedience. They wanted the easy life. They never wanted God. And so what did they get? What they wanted. Not God. They shall not enter my rest. It is crucial for us to understand what happens there in verse 4. When he appeals to the Sabbath rest, it's not just don't work on Sunday. It's recognizing that the promise of God is done. That's why Abraham could believe. He saw it from afar off. He greeted it and he welcomed it. It was as good as done. Even though the passage says he did not get the, the promise then, it was his. He died in faith. Because he knew it was as good as done. And so believer, 3a, we who have entered the rest, the parentheses, what do you want? What does the believer want? 
God. God. You get God. You've entered into the land. You get the promise. You get the rest. Rest is a person, and his work is finished from the foundation of the world. You can see that. You can trust it. Next week, we're going to hear again, strive to enter it. But this week, we see the final reflection on this negative example of the wilderness generation. I told you last week that if you're a sheep, you're a sheep. A sheep does sheep things, like we said. And so what do sheep love? They love their shepherd. Chapter 3, verse 14, it says, For we have come to share in Christ. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. What do sheep love? They love their shepherd. They are in Christ. Their rest is good, as done. And they have rest himself. Because we are in Christ. The believer believes and enters. So for us as a church, Christ the Lord, we say our mission is to what? To know, love, and obey. That's all this is. The gospel message came to us, just as it did to them. They did not enter in because of unbelief, but we, believers, enter into the rest. We know it. We enter into the rest. We are in Christ. We love Him. That's what we wanted. That's what we chase. That's what we want to embrace. That's what satisfies us. That's what holds us. That's what pushes us through the day. That's what lets us lay our life down for others. That's what lets us keep in step with the Spirit. That's what lets us know what it means to be in the light. That's what lets us do all the one another's of Romans chapter 12. You get God. That's what you are supposed to have wanted, and you get it. But for those who God is not enough, that's okay. He won't give himself to you. They shall not enter my rest. Spurgeon says this, the true rest of God lies higher than times and places. The Lord God rests in the person of Jesus. In him, he is well pleased. The Lord speaks of him as mine elect in whom my soul delights. In the person of his son, the heart of the father finds perpetual joy. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But we also behold his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And by faith, we see that in him which gives rest to our heart. Therefore was Jesus given, this man shall be the peace. The Lord Jesus is our true Noah, in whom we find safety and rest. He was both given in birth and given up in death to be the rest of weary souls. See, for those that don't trust the finished work, they have their own work to produce. There is no rest for them. They have nothing left but work. But for those whose rest is in the one who promised and finished the work, you have a share in him. That's why you're called holy brother. That's why you're in the house that he has built. You see these pictures building? You see the assurance you can have, even amongst dire warning? And great fear.
Two verses from the hymn, Abide With Me. I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight and tears no bitterness. Where is death's sting? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still if thou abide with me. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. And life and death, O Lord, abide with me. True Israel, true sheep, love their shepherd. They listen to him, they know his voice, and they obey him. If you want to know if you're a sheep, are you knowing, loving, and obeying? We try to make it as easy as we can. That's the call. We have two pictures now, unbelief and belief. And we find what we are to do with them in our superior Joshua next week. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the picture that you've given us, the confidence we can have. Father, I pray it would not be such a, a tiresome ordeal to wrestle with whether or not we are yours. But Father, to look to our left and to our right, to the other sheep, and say, are we doing sheep things? Yes, we are. Father, we are yours. Father, if there are sheep that are fearful for us, if we start to wonder if things are wrong and other sheep are concerned or the shepherd is not nearby, and Father, we do have cause for concern. But we know that you have put into Jesus' hand those who are yours. Nothing can take them out. Let us be sheep of the shepherd. Father, let us grow in knowing you, knowing the word, the Logos. Father, this word that when you speak, it's done. When you speak, it's created. When you speak, this promise, it's fulfilled. Father, let us know that. Let us love the one that we abide with. The shepherd that guides us, that protects us, that feeds us, knows us. Father, let us obey. From fear of serving you well, because you are good and kind, because you have provided everything we have ever needed. Father, to obey you with, with joy, knowing that you not just call us to holiness, but Father, you call us to partnership, to share in Christ, to share in his kingdom. Father, you call us as brothers of your son. You are not some tyrannical despot. You are kind, you are merciful, and you are full of grace. But let us obey you well. And we might live this out in front of a whole world. Father, that the rest of the sheep might come. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.